Can you hear me? Yeah? Good. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be able to continue our study and our work here in the book of Romans. I'd ask you to turn with me in your Bibles. If it's not one in your hand, certainly pick one up from in front of you if it's available. It's always good, especially when we're looking at these kind of uh, works and these studies in the Scriptures that are very didactic and very theological in, in nature, to follow along, to connect the dots, uh, to be able to... Um, be able to see where God is taking us and where He is guiding us through His Word. I am thankful to be able to be in the book of Romans, which is a very familiar book to, I'm sure, all of you, but also the fact that this is a, these are familiar passages. There are some that may be obscure. There are others that you may have no idea what they're talking about. And then there may be others like uh, the one today that... Um, this beginning chapter, uh, this beginning paragraph uh, in uh, chapter 5 is something that I'm looking, I look forward to, to unfold and to parse out and to peel the onion piece by piece so that when you are on your own or when you're by yourself, and uh, we have so many tools, as I've mentioned uh, many times, especially, again, if you, I wish I got paid every time I said this, but... Uh, that to get yourself an ESV study Bible, uh, it's, a, it's a great, great tool. Uh, just not for daily Bible study, but for building an understanding about uh, what the Bible is all about and the history of the Bible and, the, and, and ethics and uh, cults and how did we get the Bible and you know, what is the plan of salvation and how do all the, uh, the dots as... Pastor Nate likes to talk about uh, and uh, is very much impassioned about and it's biblical theology of taking all these dots of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and being able to put them all together. So um, it's, it's fun to do this. It's good to do this. And to do this not only for you guys but for myself because I'm just as much as uh, have... Uh, temporary amnesia from day to day about who I am and about what I believe in and about who I represent and who my, uh, my lips have confessed many times and then also uh, placing that in my heart. So I ask you to join with me as we look at uh, this, this book of Romans chapter 5. Let me pray before I read. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the goodness that you've given to us, the blessings of faith, the sustenance of the faith that you've given to us that is not dependent upon me or anyone else, but is certainly dependent upon the grace and the work that you've given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit we're so thankful, Father, that you have planned this, this journey for us. We're thankful that we're 
that we're not just wandering alone, but that you have a plan, whether sometimes we understand it or not, whether there are times when we are alarmed and, and fickle to wonder if you love us or not. There are days when we do believe that you love us above all things, and then there are days when it's not the you that wandered, but when our hearts have wandered and our minds have become fixed on other things. Lord, you have given us these words here so that we may be mindful of the love that you've given to us in Christ. We thank you, Jesus, for being the hero of the story. We thank you for being the everything and all that we need, that there is never a time when you really disappoint us. Because, Lord, your word teaches us how you have given us everything in Jesus, and I pray that you would be with us now as we hear the words of your servant Paul given by your spirit to him to write so that we believe in these words as your words. These are you breathing out them to us. And for all of this to happen, we, we need the work of the Holy Spirit to make it all possible, to give our hearts a, a, a desire and a hunger to want our eyes to be fixed upon the Scriptures and the, and the, the goal of, of our faith. I pray, Lord, that you'll be with us now as we venture into this, this great work of, of the ministry of the Word. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at chapter 5. And if we're going to be reading verses 1 through 11 for this week and for a few weeks. Uh, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though, perhaps, for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning as we do this together. Just again, uh, uh, to, not to belabor these introductions 
but it is important for us to understand uh, where we are in this book. And uh, Paul has written to us that he is not ashamed of the gospel. Remember, we looked at that in verse 16, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. In that chapter 1, verse 17, that we've been justified by faith. And this is the major section, the, I'm saying the major theme of the section that we're, we've, been, uh, we've been looking at, partic- particularly chapter, 18, chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 24, 5, which we ended the last time we spoke. Particularly within that corpus of verses that we have, we were told in verses 18 of chapter 1 through verse 20 of chapter 3, the tremendous need to be right with God again, the the need that we have to be made right with God, to be justified by God. In verses uh, 3 through, I'm sorry, in chapter 3, verses 21 and 26, we see how this sacrifice of Jesus, the sacrifice of his son, has proved to save us, his people, from the rebelliousness and the alienation that we have been born with, born away from God. And then in verses 27 through, uh, of, of chapter 3 through the end of chapter 4, we realize that uh, this cannot be accomplished either by a Jew or anybody who's a non-Jew or a Gentile. can be accomplished by our works, by being baptized, being circumcised, by following the law. Because sin is universal, and that's what this whole book started out. This letter of Romans started out teaching us that there is a universality, whether the Jews want it with the Gentiles or not, and whether there is some this ongoing disagreement or, or heated relationships or fraction, or fraction with these two bodies, Paul takes them there and says, listen, you are one. You are together. You are all enemies of God. You are all sinners. And that's the state we are at. We are, we are alienated from God as we've looked at many times in the book of Genesis, chapter 3. We're alienated from each other. We're alienated from God. We hide from God. Adam and Eve hide from each other. Creation is now against us, so now we're alienated from creation. We look at Jim in the mirror, and Jim is alienated from Jim. He has these problems that are going on in his own mind, in his own heart. There's a conflict going on not only one day, but through his own life. And that's because of sin. Every distinction that humanity can come with, up, up with, sin just is the great leveler. Everything that we place in our humanity is wiped away when we talk about distinctions. But yet then, Paul gives us hope, and Paul gives us this great story of telling us that now what happens in Christ, there is a righteousness, a new relationship with God that we can have. And that wipes away all of the distinctions. Because in Christ there is no Jew, or Gentile, or male, or female, or any kind of distinction. We are all one in Christ. And that's where Paul has been bringing them uh, to this point. He's gone through arguments and discussions about these. Uh, 
And so we're looking at this chapter today of chapter 5, but we start a new section. It's chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8. That's what we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks. And what Paul does for us now, he does by giving us assurance. He gives us certainties. He gives us guarantees provided by this powerful gospel that he is not, or I hope neither you and I are ashamed of. The style of chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 seems to be Paul engaging into some kind of a verbal strong discussion or argument, a polemic it's called. So we see that there's questions and there's answers. And Paul anticipates questions as he's been getting questions so for so many years in his ministry that um, he then has the ability to, as you and I have the ability, what to expect when you talk with somebody, what kind of refutation they can come back with, what can they disagree with you about. And so we see here in verse uh, 1 of chapter 5, we see this kind of style change. Notice this language. Therefore, since we have been justified, we have peace. We have obtained access. We stand. We rejoice. Paul is now bringing himself along and the, all the teachings and all of the relationships of of the apostles together along with the saints and with all the readers and just saying, this is who we are. Jesus has done this for everyone. He has done this for you and for me. He's done this for every ethnic group. He's done this for every gender. He's done this for everyone. There is no distinction. There is no uncertainty which is very something i think is very important here is that he he then tells us that we now have an ins a, a very strong certainty and assurance and i want you to understand that this is what this is all about and this is what he's he's writing to us in chapter five six seven and eight chapter five here we'll be talking about this peace and hope that we have and you're going to notice these themes and these words are going to be repeated over and over again there's words of peace and the words of joy and the words of rejoicing and the glory and he's going to be talking about those over and over again and and the reason we look at this is because you notice um and i want to point out to you is that the language that we've been talking about here it says therefore since we have been justified by faith we have peace with god we have obtained access in this faith that we stand, we rejoice in the glory of God. He starts talking about sufferings. He realizes that we better understand what those sufferings are all about and when we, that God brings those into our life and allows us to go through those in our life because of, of, uh, of the sin that happens in the world, because of fallen humanity. And not only that, but when they do happen, we do not need to fall apart as easily as we all do. We don't need to fall apart. This is for hope. This is for our enjoyment. This is for us to enjoy God forever. 
This is for us to be able to have a confession upon our lips that we need not only to say in the midst of a congregation and not admit to anyone else, but when you're looking in the mirror, when you find yourself in a temptation, when you know that you're being tempted, when you know that there's a, a crossroad of making a decision of what should I do, do we remember that confession? Is that confession upon our lips? Do we, are we with certainty that God loves us, that he sent his son for us, and does that make a difference at that crossroad in our life or in the lives of other people that we deal with? If we look at chapter 5 in these words, you're going to see that there's a familiarity with chapter 8. And turn with me to chapter 8, and, a very, and it sounds very much like chapter 8. And it, what's done in, 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 uh, when we do these studies, when we do exegesis, there's a, a, a thing called like bookends, and they're called inclusios. And that's what they are. They, Paul or whatever we find the Bible, it, a phrase or a pattern or a theme is repeat is be, is uh, stated in the beginning and then repeated at the end and this is a body of work that needs to stay together because the themes are all repeated over and over again. So as we just read in chapter five, listen to what Paul writes in chapter eight, verse eighteen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is be revealed. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. There's these words, right? Fut hope and, and uh, uh, suffering. That in creation itself it will be set free from its bondage to corruption. For we know that whole creation has been growing to, groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And then in verse 24, he says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us in groanings too deep for words. And these familiar passages, and, we who, and he who searches the hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for, who, uh, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be firstborn among many brothers. And for those whom he predestined, he is called. And for those he has called, he has justified. And those he has justified, he also wants glorified. So we see this whole concept of, of justification. And we're going to see the word glory and glorification in this. And then we realize that in, in this chapter 5, there are convicting statements. There are affirmations of faith. And again, notice at the end of chapter 8, verse 31, these are, these are all these... Uh, convictions and these affirmations that Paul goes through and he says what then should we say to these things these questions that he wants to repeat so people understand the hope that they have if God is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but give him up for us all how will he not always with him also with him 
graciously give us all things? Who shall bring charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of God? That whole bantering in your head, does God really love me? Why is God allowing this to happen in my life? This theodicy, right, we've talked about many times, and I've talked to you about, is questioning God's goodness. Is God good? If he's good, then why is he allowing us to go through this? And that's who we go to. Is God good? Do I really believe in God? Is God really alive? Or am I just, am I just following a fairy tale, a story that was put in my brain by my parents, and it sounded, this is what I've studied for, and if I back off of it now, you know, where, am I, where do I to go? What do I do now? Where do I, where do I have hope? Where do I have any joy in life? Where do I have any certainty in life? He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger, or sword. Then he goes on, he says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, this is what chapter 5 is about, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, height, depth, nor anything else in all of creation that includes you and me, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Notice the, the vehicle, the very instrument, the person that this all comes through is Christ. And he, does, he never tires, Paul never tires of talking about Jesus. Never, talk, never, never tires about Jesus being the access that we have. So then the connector that we see, two verses 23, 24, 25 of chapter 4 is the word therefore. That is the connector that brings us to the argument. A whole, another discussion, though continue, continuing on this gospel, this powerful gospel that is good to us for salvation, notice he says in, in verse uh, 23 of chapter 4, but the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone talking about Abraham, talking about David. Remember, we, they looked back and said the Jews were saying, oh, we have, we're children of Abraham. Oh, we have King David. We have this legacy. And, and Paul saying, sorry, that's not going to get you anywhere. So he says these words were not just, uh, uh, were counted to him, were not just written for Abraham's sake, but for ours also. And it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Notice the basis, the very basis for this certainty is the resurrection of Christ, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now notice verse 11 in chapter, uh, verse 10 and 11 of our reading today. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. And he's going to say that a couple times. He, he says, just you can start circling them in the, as a reading today. Verse 9 says, much more. Verse 10 talks about much more. Verse 11 says, much more than that. Do you think he wants you to 
remember it? He's repeating it. He wants us to get the point. So he repeats that so that you focus on that. It's just not enough. It's like, it's like I, I forgot I was telling the other day, uh, one of the pastors that I used to work with in Boston always said that when we're thinking about the blessings of being a Christian, it's like looking at a, a, a Sunday, an ice cream Sunday. And we don't start eating the very top of the Sunday, but the Sunday is rolling off. It's just falling over the top of the cup, and it's at the bottom of the saucer. And so we don't even start going into the cup. We start eating off of the bottom of the saucer because there's so much more. And that's what Paul is trying to say to us. There's more here than you even know. There's more here than you can even believe. And that's what I need to hear when I look at myself in the mirror and saying, yep, you're God today, Jim. Yep, you, you've, you, you, you're right. If you make that decision to do this, you're all right. Don't worry about it. And this is what Paul is telling us. It, this gives us this ability to make and walk in a life of faith and of holiness and of godliness as I've mentioned before, as I've been preaching some sermons at Fort Miller, and I've preached them here from 1 John, it's saying that we, people who don't believe the Bible, don't have an understanding of what holiness is. They don't have a standard of godliness. There's a sense of, sense of right and wrong and morality, but who is moving the goalposts? Where does it all change, and who decides for it to change? Well, the guy looking in the mirror. That's who decides. You decide. I decide. Great theologians who don't even want to know God, but yet love the study of theology. People who are ethicists. People who are moralists. People who are philosophers will come up with this idea of what is right and what is wrong. And you may be, and, and I told people at funerals, if you think you've got the way of life, if you think your philosophy of life is right, if you think your morality is right, then ride that wave to the end. But I will tell you now, based upon my understanding of the Bible, not my genius, not my smartness, not my intelligence, that I guarantee you that when you hit the beach, you're going to realize that you've hit the wrong beach. You're never going to end up where you want to be, but that's where you chose to be. And so Paul writes these things and saying, he says, it's all based upon the reconciliation that we have in Jesus. It's because of the resurrection. Because we've been reconciled to God, that's the basis for it. So why does that mean certainty for us? Because how do you unraise Jesus? How do you uncrucify Jesus? It can't be done. But if you turn with, if you look at Hebrews chapter 6, you can turn there. I'm going to just read it. There's a bunch of scripture verses I have. You can write it down and you can listen. And this is this one of these problematic passages that people struggle over. And there's all kinds of different interpretations. For it is impossible. This is chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, 
who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And they have fallen and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. The Jews were struggling. That's why the writer of Hebrews is writing to them. It's saying, don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to the old way. Because you have tasted. You've had the scriptures. You've felt, you've seen the power of God in your life as the history of, of, the, of the Old Testament history, right? Of the, the, uh, the miracles of God were evident to the people of Israel. They've tasted, they've seen, but when, it, when they want to go, they give up Christ and they go back and they want to go back on the train, back to Judaism, when they go back and they rewind the video, they have to go past the cross. And what do you do once you've gone past the cross, once you go past the resurrection, there is no coming back. There is nothing you've given up every hope that you've ever had. You cannot go and find new reconciliation. You cannot find a new way. You cannot find a new hope. Because if you pass in the video, Jesus dying on the cross, then you've given up everything. And that's what he's writing to them, saying, you've given it all up. He says, they've fallen away and to restore them again to repentance, they're crucifying Jesus all over again. They're undoing everything. And so that's where he's saying, this is the certainty that you have. The, the certainty in your faith is that Jesus has died and he has reconciled himself, us to, him, to God. We were alienated and now we're now brought to God, which makes a big difference. We are now have the ability to be with God. And to feel God and to sense God in our life and to see God in the scriptures and to see the hand of God, as someone said in that video, it's from God. It's all about God. So, this is where he says in, uh, Paul writes to us in, in Ephesians, sorry, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, another powerful message here about reconciliation. You know this one as well. It's chapter 5, 2 Corinthians, verse 17. It's been quoted many, many times by me and many people in this church. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And what is that? That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Not the world to God, but God to the world. Not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors on behalf of Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him he might become the righteousness of God. So you see, this is all what 
the ending of chapter 4 is about and the beginning of chapter 5. Therefore, since having been, something, you notice the, 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 the tenses of the, um, the verbs here and the words, is that this, is, this having been justified, this is a past tense. He is saying, there's nothing you can add. There's nothing you and I can add to what Jesus has done to make us any more right with God now and forever. Whether you're a new believer or an old believer, whether you're a little of faith or a big of faith, there's nothing you can add to your life. Jeez, I think somebody's told you this before. God can't love you any more than he loves you right now? He can't. You've been justified through Christ, who God loves more than anything else. His son. This is my son who I'm well pleased. Follow him. If that's the case, God can't love us anymore. So he is saying here that we have been justified by faith. We've talked about that over and over again in this book. What is faith? Faith is the instrument that God uses, the very avenue, the very vehicle that God brings to us an understanding of who God is and brings us closer to who he is and his name is Jesus. So we see that we have now, he says, since we've been justified by faith, past tense, something's already been done. Something that you and I had nothing to do. Something that God does totally, and God's not going to go back and unchange that. But he says here, now he says, we have peace. It's a present benefit. We have peace with God now. Now notice, it's not the peace of God because there's lots of flukies out there that are telling you that they've got the peace of God. But okay, please do me a favor. Define God. And that's where it's important that we give people who use a language of this is a God thing, I want to know whose God are you talking about? And so he says, we have peace with God. Not the peace of God. Peace of God is in Philippians, right? The peace of God that transcends all understanding. Yeah, that's a great benefit. That's a great blessing. It's God's very own peace that he's given to us. But this is what he's talking about here. He is talking about someone who you hated in the past. Someone whom you were an enemy of. It says it right here. It says it in, in Ephesians chapter 2. We were objects of wrath. But God changed it all and gave us Jesus. And we are no longer objects of wrath, but now we are children of God. Sons through Jesus. Sons and daughters through Jesus. We have peace with God. It's that what justification is, right? Justification, remember that term. Justification is a legal declaration. It's a courtroom. And for people who aren't believers, they just can't get their heads wrapped around that. But when you understand Scripture, you realize that this is a, a judgment. This is a legal indictment by God. The prophets were sent to God's people to indict them of their being enemies of God. And yet they thought that they were right. And they thought that they were justified. And they thought they had, as Jeremiah says, peace, 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 when you 
have no peace. And there is no peace. Because the God you are serving is not the God that has been revealed to you. So there's a sense false of peace, sense peace, sense false of peace, no, sense, a false sense of peace, thank you, false sense of peace that we all can have at any given moment of our life, even as being believers. Because we can skew it all. We can be the best theologians at moments and the worst theologians at moments. When we're happy, when we're at Hope Church, when we're on vacation, when our kids are good, when our money's good, when our life is good, when everything is good, when we're healthy, wow, isn't God good? But when all that is taken away, do we think, do we believe that God is good? And so he says here, we have peace with God Again, who's the vehicle? Who is the one that makes this all happen? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The one, Paul, like I said, never gets tired of saying that. We have peace with God. The key verse, I think, I mean, the key verse here that, uh, that seems to highlight this bookend is this, uh, we're going to look at the very end, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because it says for those, in chapter 8, right, he says for those who he justified, he glorified. It is something that is done in the past and something that we are looking forward to the future, but God gives us a taste of it now. There's a glory that's going on in this now. It's this sanctification process, this a, a process of becoming holy. So we see that justification is by faith alone, but justification is not only by itself. There is, there is so many blessings. There are so many blessings that God has given to us, and it's all through him. Notice it says here, through him, another thing now, we've been, we have peace with God through, uh, once we've been justified. Now, through him, we have also obtained access by faith. Here's what Ephesians says to us about access. But now in Christ Jesus, this is chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. Chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. But now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near to the blood of Christ. Notice this alienation taking, has that, that we, were, we found ourselves in because of the fall. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself uh, one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through Christ, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." So we have this access, we have this ability now to get to the Father because of Jesus the Son. One, one writer writes this, uh, 
he says there's a better translation he likes better uh it says the the better translation than access would be introduction which acknowledges our unfitness to enter and our need for someone to bring us now remember in the in the in the temple there was the court of the Gentiles and the court for women. And remember, there was a sign. If you're a Gentile and you go beyond this point, you know, death. And if you're a woman and you go beyond this point for the, to the court of, uh, yard of men, you're dead. You deserve death. And then there is that holy of holies where only one person could go and not everybody was accessible though god was gracious and god gave us the gift of sacrifice and god gave us the gift of forgiveness and atoning work as we saw in the uh, day of atonement and all the sacrificial work that is done and given to us in the book of leviticus we see that god gave us that gift of being able to feel and know that god has made a way for us because we know that we are sinners for the saints of the Old Testament that they could find redemption. Although they knew that it wasn't through this animal, but that God wanted that so that because God commanded it, that God would do what he saw fit, would be accept that gift of the death of someone for the transgressions of someone else. Someone has to pay and absorb the debt. And it was through animals, it was through offerings, it was through the ultimate uh, goats and, and lambs that were uh, offered through all the sacrificial, especially on the Day of Atonement. So we see that we have that, we, God has given us that access, but in Christ we now have this ability, as it says, the Bible tells us that the, you know, that the tent, I mean the, the uh, curtain had been on the day when Christ was, uh, died, it was torn apart. And now, now we have this access to pray and to be in the audience of God. But Jesus is the one who kind of introduces us in a way. He's the one who, as, as this uh, writer says here, this translation of, one, of an introduction, it's like you think of, and I've, many, many of the uh, uh, commentators talked about the book of Esther and how Esther got herself all dressed up and got herself all ready. Why? Because she had, for such a moment as this, had to go to the king. And the king saw her beauty and, call and, and had a great affection for her, and he says, come in, and anything that you ask up to the half of my kingdom. See, she did not need to be introduced. She had the right to have an audience because she had already been introduced to the king. She had the right to reverently present herself to the king. And this is what Jesus does for us. Jesus gives us this great privilege and blessing to be able to now access the very temple of the Holy of Holies because of who he is and what he has done for us. And now we identify ourselves with him. And so that's what this access is all about. We have now been introduced, and now we have this, this freedom of being able to come to the Father and through Jesus our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to be able to have this conversation, this pleading, this lamenting, this rejoicing, this praising, going back and forth, because once it's done, it's done. We have now been given access. I hope that helps it helps me to be able to embrace and to be thankful for this gift that, that God has given to us in this access. 
And so then he says uh, uh, in, in Hebrews chapter, chapter 10, he says in the book of Hebrews, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, this access, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. This is what Paul is writing to us in the very first couple verses of chapter 5. He says that we can then draw near in tr with, with a true heart in full assurance of that faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure wa water. Let us hold fast the confession of this hope, of our hope, without wavering, for he promised, he who promised us is faithful. We've been given this, right? This, this great promise of having this access. And notice it says, into this grace. What grace? This access we have. We, this justification that we've been given. This new life we've been given. This faith we've been given. This, this all the package, everything that Paul's been writing, he says now we have the ability to, to uh, uh, into this grace we can stand, he says, in which we now stand. And remember last week we looked at that Lenten de devotional that I read from Paul Tripp, and it was Psalm 130. And in it, it says, it says if, Lord, if you were to keep track of all of our sins, who could stand? We wouldn't be able to even stand in there. It's like standing, he says, in which we stand. It, it's almost like bringing us to another world, bringing us to another realm, someplace that unbelievers aren't given that access to, but we are. We now have the ability to go into the Holy of Holies. It's another realm. It's not earth. We have this new location, this new dwelling place, this new place that we can go and we can fall on our face and ask God to forgive us. We can fall on our face and saying, Lord, I know you're good. I just don't feel it now. I just don't know what's going on now. And as your child comes to you with tears in her eyes and not knowing what's going on, you don't kick them to the curb and say, grow up. You say, no, I understand, but this is what I'm doing in your life. This is what has to happen in your life. We, it's just counterintuitive for us, but we have to believe that God is good. We have to believe that. Because now we live in this, by this faith, in this, as he says here, into this grace. We are now in a realm of grace. We live in a world of grace. We think in grace which we now live, folks. We live now. It's a new place we live. We don't live here anymore. We now live in the heavenly, with, with Jesus, who are in the heavenly places. We now look at life from a higher place, a more strategic view of life. And then he ends up in this passage with this verse here, which is, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, the word here is, is boasting. It could be used as boasting, and it has been used many times. We jo rejoice, we hope, we boast. I mean, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Remember in chapter 4, verse 2, what did, what did Paul say to the, to the questionnaire? 
questioner. He says, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Well, for if Abraham was justified by his works, he has something to rejoice in or something to boast about. But we see that there's nothing. He says, you have nothing to boast about. And Paul writes in other places, unless you boast in the cross, unless you boast in the Lord, then you can do all the boasting you want to do. But so he says, we now boast. He says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, this is chapter 6 of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 6 of the book of Hebrews, verse 17 and tw through 20. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our souls, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. I ain't making this stuff up, people. It's all right here. It's in these verses. We connect the dots. We see this. This is where this, these two verses, folks, we could have five sermons just on these verses. And there have people that have done that. I've <laughs> had lots of verses more than that. Lots of sermons in one of those verses. But the thing is then, is that we rejoice, we boast in this hope, and hope is a certain thing, right? It's not uncertainty, it's certainty, it's assurance. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 6. It's a full assurance that we don't have to lose anything. We will never lose anything. We cannot uncrucify Christ. We cannot unresurrect Christ. It's historical. It's done. So he says we have full hope. Full hope in what God is going to do. Now we hope, and we don't necessarily see it now, but we don't hope without uncertainty because we know that it is going to happen. Lastly, he says, the glory of God. That's where the glory of God is this promise that he's given to us of, of eternal life, right? With, this is what the end result of us glorifying God is that God then gives us his glory. Through Jesus. We read in, in, John, in uh, John chapter 17, I have glorified you on earth. Speaking to his father, the high priestly prayer, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's in, that's in verses 4 and 5. Then in verses 17 through 21 in chapter 17 of John's gospel. Sanctify them in truth, and your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified by the truth. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through the word, that they may all be one as you as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And that's 
sharing in the glory of Christ. He says in 1 John chapter 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has, yet to be, yet, has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We will be glorified as, the pro, as is promised. And everyone who thus puts his hope in this truth will continue to live a godly and holy life. Here again, what are we confessing with our lips? What do we believe in? These are the things that the Lord has given to us so that the church can be a community of faith and we can be with one another and hold each other up and pray for each other and watch out for each other so that God will build a people who are holy for himself. And then last, this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, behold the glory of God. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one glory to another. Every step of every day, there is this ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our life, sanctifying us, purifying us, working in our wills to want to say no to ungodliness. And you and I know that we're going to fail. You and I know that we're going to sin. Some of those are going to be huge. Some of those are going to be tremendous failures. Some of them are going to feel like paper cuts and yet just burn you and hurt you so greatly. Some of them are going to destroy your life. Some of them are going to be used by Satan to try to take away your faith. But if our hope is certain, if you can't uncrucify Christ, if we can't be unreconciled to God, then we can never, ever lose our salvation, which is one of the great tenets of the Reformed faith, is that we can never lose our salvation. Everyone, he said, I'm sorry, this again, I'm going to read that again, verse 18 of first, Second Corinthians. And we all with unveiled, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I hope that you are going to enjoy this ride of chapter 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 to unfold this stuff. Do you see? How do you, we can't just read those words, those two verses, and just go, yeah, I know this. I've read this. But until God, the Holy Spirit, unpacks them for us and we understand what the corpus of the Bible teaches us about these benefits and these assurances and these certainties and these guarantees that we have in the gospel, we'll never know them. We'll never understand them unless the Spirit of God reveals them to us. And how does he do that? By his word, by Bible study, by prayer, by preaching, by being present where the word of God is preached. 
That's why God has given us his church. So I pray that we together will ask the Lord to continue to open our eyes to be able to see these blessings that he's given to us in Jesus. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for these words. We realize, Lord, that when, when we had to sit on a suitcase to close it, and then when we open it up, it just bursts forth with all the stuff inside. This is what you have given us this day by these passages of, of the scriptures, of these words. Of just these two verses, Lord, there is so much more detail that we could go into, Lord. But I pray that these, these words, this exposition, this study has, has just whet our appetite, that gives us a desire to go back for more. And Lord, I pray that your will will be done, that your word will go out and accomplish everything that you desire it to do. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.